Hello, and welcome to Found Tech Crunch's podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks who are building them. And today I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Dominic Midori Davis. Dom, how is it going? It's going okay. It's been a hot few days here in New York City. Oh, yeah. Hot and rainy, I should say. We have been roasting alive here in New York City, but hopefully that's coming to a close. Yes, it's fall, or it's almost fall. It's fall basically, kind of. It's fall junior. It's fall junior. Yes, this is, you know, fall junior, best time of the year. I'm so excited for things to cool down. Well, in opposition of cooling down, we have a company on today that is definitely on the verge of heating up. Today, we're talking to Giovanni Philly, the co-founder of Exiger, which is a company that manufactures solar cells that drive new possibilities for light-powered products. And here's our conversation with Giovanni. Hi, Giovanni. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Exiger? Sure. So Exiger is a Swedish company that I founded some 15 years ago. We have invented uh, a new solar cell. It's the fourth commercial technology in the world after almost 100 years of research. So it's pretty close to impossible actually to do that, but we managed. And uh, the cool thing with this technology is that it works both indoor and outdoor. Mm. So it's a flexible film, like plastic-based film that it's, it's printed, it's all printed. And like when you print in your house, you can print any color, any shape, size, dimension. So it can also look like almost anything. It can look like leather, textile, brush steel, wood. So with these unique characteristics, so this, we're the only ones in the world who can do this, the solar cell can be integrated into basically any product and allow that product to be self-powered, to be smart. So, for example, you know, headphones, speaker, remote control, keyboard, mouse, sensors, anything that has a battery in it can be self-powered just by using the ambient light around it. Indoor, shade, outdoor, of course, as well. Just enabling this whole smartness in the world. And since you mentioned it's the fourth commercial product ever to do something in this area, what was it like developing this and how did you guys get interested in this to begin with? I mean, it all started, so I've been an entrepreneur since I was 15. Mm. I've had many different companies, everything from hotels to restaurants, IT companies, and I've lost a lot of money, managed to earn a little bit more. Oh, good. And at, at the, yeah, and at the time I was deep into real estate and I just, I had been investing in a lot of startups in Sweden and in, in the tech space and like the scientifically based startups. And we heard about this new thing that someone could make a transparent solar cell. I'm like, yeah, right. Transparent. Okay. It looked like a solar shading film, basically. It was four by four millimeters only large at the time. And this intrigued me because I had this vision that if I could make a solar shading film that I could integrate into glass facades in skyscrapers, I could convert these facades into power producing facades. And I could sell this clean energy to the house and any extra energy, I could just put it out on the grid to become like a virtual power plant. So this is how sort of when I started thinking about this from a real estate angle and then I started digging and I realized that this technology was in the lab. It was a cool thing. No one had ever done any large-scale manufacturing of it. And then I thought, well, you know, we're pretty good at manufacturing in Sweden. We're very good at automation, robotization. And then I found my co-founder, Dr. Henrik, who happened to be a genius. And so I employed him and we refounded, you could say, the company together. You know, we started working and together we have solved some of the greatest problems or challenges in, in the technology that, you know, we're, we're always blocking the commercialization. 
And that also led us to get all these awards, you know, best innovation in Europe and innovator of the year in Europe and a lot of this stuff. So that's how it started. And now, you know, when, when the market sort of said, great guys, the transparent solar cell, the window is an excellent thing, but the product is the whole facade, not the window. So can you please innovate, you know, just invent a new technology that is non-transparent and has all these features. And we were like, okay, so we have to invent something new. And then we did. So that's how we ended up with this flexible film that can look like anything and work in all light. As you could also mention, it takes light from any angle. So we don't have to track the light source. Can take lights from the side as well, and then we realized, okay, we have the highest power output, you know, indoor and diffuse light and this suboptimal light level. So, hmm, what if we integrate this into consumer products, like I mentioned, you know, or portable stuff? Okay, that would just open up a tremendous world of opportunities, enabling all these features, anything from a smart connected helmet, you know, that you know gives you safety. Or in your construction site, if you have connected helmets or hearing protectors or clothes. So that's sort of how we realized, okay, this technology has massive potential. We need to make it happen. We need to deliver. We need to manufacture this at scale. We have to deliver this to the world. I'm just curious, where would you peg yourselves in the process? Like you have been building for quite a while. Are you guys actively working with customers still sort of like getting to that stage? You have prototypes, like just like where, yeah, where you guys are in the journey. I mean, it's, I actually started with this in November, 2007. So it's actually 16 years now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, it takes, so we are what you would call a deep tech company. So a company based on, you know, profound fundamental science, scientific breakthroughs. And we have 270 plus patents, approved patents and all that stuff. And we were actually ready for a global takeover. We were super psyched, like fall 2019. We had gotten SoftBank in as the first large investor during the winter 2019. We had signed with Harman Group, Samsung-owned you know, audio company, largest in the world, with JBL fronting. We were going to l- release our first headphone 2020. And we had this huge campaign around Christmas 2019, massive success. And then January 2020, everybody remembers COVID happened. So everything shut down, obviously. China was closed for three years. U.S. was closed for two years. So we had to change our strategy. This, our strategy before that was to build the largest factory in the world because we had the best technology in the world for what we wanted to do. So we said, okay, we need to build the largest factory in the world. We need to get the largest investor on board and we need to, the largest customer in the world. And we had all these three. And then everything closed down. So we had to change strategy and move over to companies that we could work with when the world was closed because Sweden re- stayed open. I don't know if you were aware of that, right. but yeah, Sweden stayed open. Nothing's closed. No closed, nothing. So we found a number of Swedish companies, Urbanista and uh, Zound Industries and Marshall Group now with the Adidas headphone, with the POC, the hel- smart helmet. So during COVID, we actually developed and released seven products. They're, they're on the shelf now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And some decent brands there. Adidas is a pretty good brand and some others. So we've been selling for around two years now. But now, after China finally opened this year in February, U.S. last spring, we have gone back to our original strategy, which is to work with the largest brands in the world. So this year, we have announced that we have exclusive partnerships with some of the largest companies in the world. For example, we work with a company called ImagoTag that have over 50% of the world market for electronic shelf labels, you know, the price tags in the stores, the small screens. Mm. So they have Walmart, they have Ikea, they have all the large customers in the world, they have 50 plus percent of the world market, and we have an exclusivity with them, a multi-year exclusivity. So that's coming into effect now. 
we are just now back to your question right where are we now i can say that we are now just on the verge of a huge global commercial breakthrough so it's it's, it's just uh, it feels really good after 16 years of struggling and just trying to develop a not an idea with a new not a particle now we're 200 people raised 200 million dollars and now it's just you know full speed ahead You've mentioned all the work that you're doing with all the brands, but I'm really interested to know, so how do the brands use your product in terms of like the products that they create? And what does that, what it, like, what does that do for the consumer? Like, what are they, what do they get out of that, all of that? Yeah. So it's funny because if you ask someone what an ingredient brand is, not a lot of people know it like automatically, but then I say like Intel Inside, everybody knows Intel Inside, right? You have the small sticker on your computer or your device. Or maybe Gore-Tex, where they have the extra hanger on the clothes. Like if you buy a jacket, you have the small like uh, leaflet there. But there's not that many other examples of, of good ingredient brands. And the reason for that is that why should a company like a famous jacket manufacturer allow someone else to, to piggyback on their brand, on their marketing and their campaigns? So any component manufacturer in the world would love to become an ingredient brand. We have actually succeeded here. So we are on all our customers, on all our products. Our brand is visible. Our brand is visible next to the Adidas brand on the headphones. We are on all other products and our brand name is, is Powerfoil. And the reason for that is that we, like you ask, we give them something that they can't get in any other way. We provide them with endless sustainability. We allow them to remove the charge cable, to remove, replace um, disposable batteries. So as sustainability is just 100%. We allow them to increase smartness in their devices. They can add more functionality because we provide them with just endless energy by taking the light around them, around the user, and converting it to electricity. We can allow the company, the brand, the product owner, to increase smartness of the device because we have constantly refilling electricity energy. So there's a number. We also enable the functionality that they want. Maybe it's safety can be tracking, can be sensors. Okay, someone fell over. Okay, we can see that in the sensors in the product. So we are, we are an enabler of functionality and of feelings as well. You know, and energy independence is a pretty strong word and it's a pretty strong statement. Anything from a hostile situation, if, you know, with a terrible war we see now in Europe, for example, portable things that are always powered for safety in your home or at your work or so on. So we provide a number of a set of unique characteristics that at the moment no one else can offer this in the way we can. That's why I'm co-branded with these massive, massive companies. So that, that's the reason. And we've been working a lot with this because one of my visions when I started the company was I wanted to create an ingredient brand, a true ingredient brand. And to do that, I had, we had to develop a technology that could be seamlessly integrated into other products that are already selling in the billions of units per year. And that meant that we had to develop something that didn't you know change the thickness of the product the weight the look the feeling of it the touch the texture so we can make it look we have done leather bags where the leather is the solar cell so the bag is charging itself for smartness functionality maybe you want to know where your bag is because it's expensive maybe you want to know how your bag is feeling is it is it moisture inside is it dry is it good you know is it your bag we can use blockchain to, to see who's the real owner of the bag. We can add functionality to work against counterfeiting, fake copies of the bag, you know, and so on and so forth. Or you want to charge your phone in the bag from the battery that was charged by the bag when it was placed in the bright spot, right? So we can create these ecosystems of just 
power and power sharing and smartness without compromising the DNA of the original product. No, that's so cool. And so you only kind of do partnerships and collaborations with brands. Have you ever thought about doing it like alone or by yourself? And why did you kind of rule that out? I tell you, we think about that every day because we get so much inspiration and we have so many ideas. But in the end, it felt like, I was like, I want to bring this technology to the world. I want to see what this can do for people all over. I want to democratize, you know, energy in a way. Cause, and then I, we thought that, okay, let's just work with all the best and good companies in the world that, you know, we, have, we share the same values with and that have global distribution and represent something good and allow them to do what they do best, but allow us to be everywhere. So even though we are now exclusive with some of the largest companies in the world for a while, look forward a few years, we're going to be everywhere. And I think that's the way for us to make the greatest impact. But we have fantastic team internally of product developers because we help our customers as well and man they would love to do their own products but we don't we try and give our our partners our best ideas instead and help them develop their own stuff so i tell them it's like they should think about us as you know being the gasoline in nascar okay here comes a new gasoline a new fuel everyone can use it Everyone's allowed to use it so they can still compete with their other skills, like, you know, who is best at technique when they're driving or whatever it is. So we want this to be everywhere. And we think this is the best strategy at the moment. Yes. 16 years of building this sounds so fun, but also so very expensive. Yep. <laughs> and so, like, what has it been like 16 years of kind of fundraising and bootstrapping this idea? Yeah. Honestly, it's just terrible. You know, 16 years. When you look back, it's like, it's a large part of my life, right? <laughs> But it takes, it takes like 15 years to take a deep tech idea to full industrial level if you're fast. So I think that the first years were very difficult to fundraise when you tell someone, okay, look, so there's like one in a million or less that we're going to succeed. Everybody else has failed to make a new solar cell. You just can't do that. It's just so difficult. But, uh, you know, believe in us and we'll know in 15 years if it works. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit tricky to fundraise there, especially at 15 years ago. I mean, now there's much more focus and many more funds looking at deep tech and doing hardware and realizing this is important for the world and for, you know, for the society. At the time, there were not a lot of patient capital in Sweden. We don't have the same ecosystem that, that you have in the U.S. either with a lot of success stories, entrepreneurs reinvesting and, you know, all that. So it's been a struggle for sure. We've been forced to be smart and really use the money we raised. We've raised around $200 million, which is a lot of money. But not a lot of money if you compare to what others spend or invest in, in, in similar situations. But we had to work with what we had. And, but uh, funding is, uh, has been and is still an important aspect of entrepreneurship, definitely. So it's important to believe in yourself and to find the good people that are patient and are long-term that believe in you. So the more, I think I have, a, I'm fortunate, I have a lot of, of family offices and strong industrial families backing me since, since the early days. So they've been very patient. I'm, I, I'm so grateful that I have them on board. Also, a lot of the pension money in Sweden is behind us as well. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. And welcome back. One thing I was curious about, too, with how long you guys have been building, obviously this kind of technology isn't just within like the clean tech space, but it is a cleaner energy source. And I feel like the, especially investor sentiment around that area has changed so much over the last few years based on when you guys started. 
you guys started before the clean tech bubble, the burst of the clean tech bubble, and now sort of this resurgence of investors and startups just really starting to care about building companies with sustainability and sort of the energy transfer in mind. And how much has that not necessarily played a role with building a company, but has that helped you guys? Like, what has it just been like building in a space that has changed so much since you guys did get started? Yeah, it's a very good, it's a very good question. And I'll try to summarize it. I mean, like you say, when I saw in 2009, when I founded the company after having worked like a year of preparation and just, I started it and just shortly after there was a, it's called the solar shakeout or the solar bloodbath. Like in Europe, we had this solar valley, even in Germany, like you have Silicon Valley in the US. So all the solar cell companies came to Germany. Germany, they gave out land. They helped all these companies to establish themselves. And then a few years after that, the silicon technology came into the hands of China. So the German and the Swiss and the Austrian manufacturers of machines, they sold complete factories to China and it just became a volume game. And China's government subsidized the price. Everyone knows that. So they sold way too cheap and the whole world basically just died. And today, I mean, nine out of 10 are Chinese manufacturers and you know know the rest. Sorry, but that was a difficult time. We have a silicon-free solar cell. So we were never affected by the silicon war that's still going on with the problems between the, the countries. So we had an advantage there. It was very tough when all funding just dried out totally, like you said, that this clean tech bubble just exploded. And everybody looked back to fundamentals. Okay, where do we have you know, anything that's good for real? Why is it good? And people started asking themselves, okay, is this important for people? Why is anybody going to buy this product? Is it important for people? No one's going to buy it unless it's important. Okay, yeah, you know, solar cells on like solar parks, that's more like governments perhaps, or like huge investors. And then fast forward some years, we could start to see installations on roofs, right, on buildings. And then our way to see this was, we need to make something that's important for the normal people, for you and me. So like, so what do we use in our everyday life? That's how we, you know, saw this. Well, okay, so there's almost 1 billion headphones sold every year, okay. 400 million helmets are sold every year, okay. Hundreds of millions of speakers are sold every year. A billion remote controls are sold every year, etc., etc., etc. Okay, these things are already sold anyway. If we can take these and integrate our technology in these products, keeping the good stuff with the products, you know, the looks, the feeling of all of that, but allowing it to be, like I said, more sustainable, and better, have more functionality, stronger light, better process or whatever it is to use the X or just endless battery. That's good. We don't have to invent anything new. So we wanted to take solar, the capacity of converting light to electricity and put it in every man and every woman's hand. That was how we, we thought about this. I wanted to do it by building the strong brand that I spoke about before. But it's been very strange. Like you say, you know, first there was a boom, then there was a, a burst. And then there was just waiting, what's going to happen now? And so many investors were... They lost a lot of money just when we came in. But now, I mean, now the world has understood the value of energy independence. They have understood the value of, I mean, just, do you know that every year the consumer electronic industry use 10 billion disposable batteries? Can you just imagine that amount, 10 billion? And with the new factory that we're building, we're building our second factory now in Stockholm, which will be one of the largest solar cell factories in Europe, maybe the largest. And that factory alone, I can replace 2 billion of those batteries per year. Wow. Yeah, it's a significant impact. And without you or me having changed behavior, we're just 
use the remote like we always use it. We use our headphones like we always use them. You never need to charge them, never need to change batteries. That's how we want to, you know, how, how we think about this. And it's easy for me to explain to you. Just You don't have to do anything. It's just going to help you in your life, help you be a better, right. more sustainable, you know, more smarter or that. That's why we've been able to explain it, I think, to investors. It's easy to explain. Do you want a self-powered headphone? Yes, please. Okay. Do you want a speaker that you can bring, you know, when you go out skateboarding or basketball, whatever you do, you're on the beach or you're in your backyard. You want a speaker that never runs out of battery? Yes, please. I mean, it's not difficult to explain <laughs> the feature and everybody in the whole world share the same pain point in consumer electronics battery anxiety and cables everybody hates cables everybody hates that when your battery runs out wherever you go in the world they will tell you the same so it was easy for us once we had set the strategy it was easy for us to explain what we wanted to do and we could quickly start to prototype and use those to get investors on board but like i said just now i mean a while ago it took me eight years eight years since we flew over the first time silicon valley and showed the prototype of this product and now we have landed that product exactly, which will come on the market in the middle of next year. So even, you know, when people understand it, the customer is there, everybody sees the value. You have to just wait. You need to, the timing has to be right. A lot of things have to be right to land such a deal. And that's why we have invested so much money to be prepared. We're the only company in the world that can take orders and do partnerships with these massive companies. It requires you to have a huge quality department, a huge sourcing department, huge supply department. You need to have two factories because if you only have one, okay, what about dual sourcing? What if your factory burns down when we're in the middle of a TV commercial, you know, launch, la la la. So it's like just you have just these enormous demands on you. But if you can meet those, you can make a deal with some of the largest companies in the world, even if you're a fairly small scale up from Sweden, right? So I guess in one way you can say we, we're now realizing our dream slash vision that we had for the last at least 12 years. And something I was also curious about with building the company, you've had quite the background on the business side, working with many different kinds of startups and not say, oh, well, I was researching this technology for 25 years and then launched a company. So what has it been like transitioning from some of the companies and businesses you've been working on in the past to something that is deep tech and to something where you are kind of have to sort of, I don't want to say pass off the knowledge, but let like the science guys do the science stuff. It's a little, just a little bit different. Yeah, no, it's a very, it's a, it's a very good question. And it has been quite a journey. Because the thing is, and like you say, I had to really rethink because it was, it was not me in the driver's seat anymore. Like it had been in previous startups and so on. Now it was me and, and Henrik and we had to do this together. But he also had to give up, you know, his sort of, it was together for him as well. So basically we use a drawing or we use this, we call it the 595 model. So it's like two circles meeting like a Venn diagram, you know, when two circles come together and they have an overlapping section there. So I told him, I promise you, I will always only sell things that you can back up. He said, okay, that sounds good. I'm not going to oversell or promise stuff that you can't back up. Okay, that's excellent. What's the cash? What do you need from me? And I told him, you need to promise me that you only research on things that I can't sell. <laughs> He's like, he was like, okay, hmm, explain. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm sure that you being a genius and all that, you can come up with something that looks like a glass of water, but it's, it's actually an apple, you know, chemically wise or theoretically wise. I don't know. 
but I can't sell a glass of water as an apple to anyone else. Right. So we need to we need to agree on what the product's going to be. You have to tell me what can we do with the technology. Can we do a gold-colored solar cell? No. Okay, we can do red, green. That's good. Can we do semi-transparent? Yes, we can. Okay. How thick can the glass be or how thin does it have to be? How flexible is the plastic cell? And, you know, all these sort of boundary conditions he had to give me. And then we decided together, okay, these are the products we're going to go for. Stop. I don't want you to do anything else now. Just research on the things that we have decided we're going to do. Within that space, just go deep, go crazy. I don't care because I know that anything you do either is the product or is part of the product. Don't venture out and do fundamental research just for research sake. That's what's done in universities typically. That's great. We need that in society, but not in the company. We can't afford that. So I had to give up like my creative business. Just, yeah, we go here, we do this. We can, you know, do business, all that stuff. Because the boundaries were set by the technology. And then after we had set those, he had to give up all these crazy ideas that we could research into new. I said, no, what we have is good enough. We need to commercialize. We need to scale it up. We need to commercialize it now. And he has a long list. I mean, it's so long, the list he has of things that he want to do. And I said, love it. Put it in the drawer later. So it's been a process for both of us where we have had to sacrifice 95% of the circles of the stuff we wanted to do and just focus on the 5% overlap that we could find. So it's been uh, very difficult. The first years were very difficult for both of us. Also because, okay, will it work? It's going to take another 10, 15 years if it works. So we had to find strategies to have small wins during the trip, you know, and just celebrate things that we accomplished, work a lot with the culture internally to motivate people and to get the best people on board and it's been, we're, I tell people, it's like we are dancing together. I move, he has to move with me. We have to move together. We can't leave this circle. We, have to, we need to have the overlap at all times. So we spoke a little bit about you and your co-founder. How big is your company now? How many employees do you have? We're around 200. 200 employees. So how would you describe your leadership style and in terms of, I guess, fostering positive company culture, keeping everyone motivated? I think I'm... Uh, or I try to be a leader that puts big, great trust in my colleagues. So I use a sports metaphor to describe how I want to lead the company. So even though we don't have that much American football in Sweden, I use it as a metaphor. So I say, okay, so you know the guys that huddle, you know, they, they stand there on, on the pitch and they huddle up and say, okay, let's do this game system uh, ABC 4-1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do they do really? They align, right? They align, okay, let's... So everybody, when they leave the group, they know... What to do? Everybody knows their individual role, what they're going to do, and they know why they're doing it. But not, it's not necessarily so that the other guys know how the other guy is able to run so fast or run past his defender or whatever it is. But he trusts, so the guy is going to throw the ball, he just trusts the runner. Okay, he will be over there in exactly one and a half seconds. So I will throw the ball there. I just trust him to be there. And the guy runs. He can't, you know, run and look back before the time is right. Then they will tackle him. He just needs to trust that the ball will come there. So it's a game of trust. That's how I, I tell everybody how we should see it. We align what we're going to do and why. Make sure everybody understands the goals. So why do we need to reach this um, manufacturing capacity, for example. Well, because these customers, they expect us to have it and we need to have extra capacity if something happens or we get other customers in. Why do we need this permit? Well, it's an environmental permit. Without that, we can't deliver and manufacture and so on. So make sure everybody understands why we're doing all the things we're doing, what the goals are, and then I trust them 
to do it in the best possible way. So they have a lot of freedom and they're to decide how they're going to go about with these tasks because that's why we have recruited them. I'm not going to tell my CMO how to decide on marketing strategy. That's not I don't know that. I trust her. I'm not going to tell my head of, you know, manufacturing how to manufacture. He knows that. But we will together decide what are the manufacturing goals and I will explain why they're important for the business. So I'm I'm a pretty good listener. I give a lot of responsibility. I should probably be a little bit tougher sometimes, like consequence management. But, you know, I, I work on that. I'm also quite generous because I believe in sharing. And everybody's more motivated when everybody is. So everybody basically has warrants in the, in the big stock option programs in the company. A lot of the employees are own shares as well. We have loads of fun. I try to talk a lot to everybody on like in the company that it's important that we celebrate along the way we can't wait for the big win we have to you know have fun along the way so we laugh a lot and we we have a large degree of freedom in how we perform things one of the other things i wanted to ask you especially it ties into leadership style here as well but you have done so many other companies and worked at other places been a founder before before starting this company what's one thing you learned in sort of the past endeavors that you made sure to implement this time around or something that you feel like you've done better that maybe was a challenge for you in past sort of entities and growing those kinds of companies as well. How do you feel you've learned now that you're on this company? Focus. Focus is the one of the most important learnings, definitely. During my entrepreneurial journey, I mean, since I'm 47 now, I started my first company when I was 15. You know, when you're nobody and just start to work and you do well, people appreciate you, who you are, and like they start to ask you to join things. Can you help out? Can you come here? Can you just give us your advice? And you feel so happy. You feel flattered. You Suddenly you are someone and everybody, he wants my advice, you know. You just grow and and then you start to dilute yourself because everybody wants you, the full energy package, they want all of you, but you can only give so much. And suddenly you end up giving away a lot of your energy and focus to many other things and people and, and events and companies. So your own stuff almost starts to you know, fail or you get disappoint people around you because that's where you're supposed to be. So that's one learning that remember to keep focused, be happy, appreciate when people say you're great and all that, but stay focused on your task. You know, laser focus on your on your goal. That's one thing. Another thing is to surround yourself with smart people, smarter people than yourself, preferably, and ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of smartness, right? So that's been a big learning as well that I, you know, when I was young, I just thought I could do everything myself. I just worked harder and harder just out of stupidity. I could have just asked an expert, you know, like day one. So th- that's another learning, you know, Work with people that are smart and that have integrity uh, that you can trust. And those, those are two definitely really, really major learnings. Another learning is, of course, to get enough funding. You know, ask for money when you don't need it. That's when you're going to get it. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's a quite generic learning, but... It's been important. People are learning it in real time. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think a lot over of the people, last year. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like, Definitely good in hindsight to know that. I would say. No, I think that also this time when I started the company, I was I said, okay, this time I'm going to do it my way. I'm sure there are hundreds of other ways, but I'm going to do this my way, and I'm going to do it all the way my way and see where it can take us. So, and that meant 
that I was very selective in who I recruited, of course. I also worked very close with advisors early on to make sure we did right. Like we did an IP, we formulated an IP strategy like when it was only me. So, and she asked me, my advisor, so what do you want to do? I told her I want to build the next Apple. And she laughed and I didn't laugh. And she was like, okay, what do you want, what do you want me to do with this? I said, I mean, I want you to help me formulate a strategy so that I can sit in 10 to 15 years with the largest companies in the world and just tell them, yes, we have an IP strategy that's in line with your expectations that you would have more or less. And of course, that cost me money, but it was an investment we did early on. So we have, or I or we, I mean, we have rigged the company in such a way that we can now sit with the largest companies in the world and tell them, yes, we have all this. Yes, 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 yes. And we've had it for, for a decade. Oh, okay. So yes, we can be your partner, your supplier. You can trust us. Here you have all the proofs. So that was a big win, I think, when we realized that this, it was a big bet. It was expensive to do all this, but we, we, it was right. In retrospect, it was right. And many people have been, uh, over the years, a bit skeptic, you can say. Uh, <laughs> so why would, you, why would you succeed with this? No one else has succeeded before. How are you going to build such a strong brand? What makes you think you're going to solve this? And, and I told them every time, because we have the technology, but above all, we have the people. We have a superior team. So many, I'm, I mean... Exeter today is just 200 people, a lot of very, very, very passionate and smart people. And these are the ones that made it, not me. I mean, I'm, I'm just a CEO. Giovanni, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been great. And that was our conversation with Giovanni. Dom, what did you think? I thought the company was really, really fascinating. What are your thoughts? I thought it was really fascinating, too. One of those companies that we have on where it's like, I feel like I learned a lot, but I still have a lot of questions now that I'm like thinking back on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely same. I understand the product, but I'm also like, there's so much more to understand about the product and the context that it's in and just the ways that it can be used. Because like in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so you have headphones and then you can have these charging batteries in it and it just the sun charges it basically. No, because that was one of my questions, too, because I'm curious, because we talked a lot about small consumer goods, which, of course, I mean, like, if you're getting out your first products into the market, you are going to start with those smaller things that are a little more easy to tackle and manageable. But I'm curious, like, how big this technology could scale. Like, could this replace generators? Like, could it be built out on a scale like that? Were we thinking of, like, not just, like, the little AAAs and stuff, those kind of batteries being replaced, but can it replace, like, other energy sources down the line? Like, is that even a possibility? I wish we had asked. I guess it could replace everything, right? Or like anything with a battery. I'm sure there's more like science into that, but I'm assuming like any place with reasonable sunlight hours could probably use this. Right. But I don't know. Because I also, I think it's interesting to the way he talked about developing the tech with his co-founder, who's definitely more on the science side. And the way he talked about like the Venn diagram of being like, okay, this is the stuff I would like to use. This is the stuff you actually think we could get done and are going to spend time researching and like just focusing on the middle. I think that's such a fascinating way to approach figuring this out because deep tech, I mean, like he said, like you start this project, you don't even know if it's going to work. So it's like, I have always been curious about like the guardrails and like how people decide. Like I remember when we had Colossal on maybe like nine months ago at this point and like they're bringing back animals who are extinct. And it's like, 
how do you decide what to bring back? Like, there's so many things and, like, all these different things. And they said the same thing. Like, they decided to focus on some of the areas where the match was high enough that it would just be the most likely to work. I don't know. People are always trying to solve moonshot problems, but it's nice to hear about, like, oh, well, this is how you approach a moonshot problem. Like, you do approach, like, the low-hanging fruit first, which makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he spent 16 years building it. I was trying to think, is that early to the market, or what was happening 16 years ago in the battery space? Yeah, the battery space specifically, I don't know. This is definitely pre-my time of, like, caring about any of this kind of stuff, but like, I mean, it was pre like the clean tech bubble and burst. So definitely interesting to have been building that long, especially because of like how the market sentiment has changed. But it definitely seems like it's good timing now because I feel like the battery conversation is really, really big because isn't there something where it's like batteries are just, well, at least the batteries that we use now, a lot of them are not sustainable and they're trying to make cleaner batteries. Plus, I just feel like with the rise of like electric vehicles, people are just talking about batteries more and securing the materials needed to make them and sort of making them work better. I just feel like people are just talking about batteries a lot more over the last few years because of that. Batteries are everywhere. They are. And I mean, he said that they are on track to just replace 2 billion batteries a year, just themselves, which is, that's crazy to think about. That's a lot of batteries. It really is. Okay, so what, like every year we use like 10 billion batteries. Yeah, it's like a solid fifth. Like That's a lot of batteries. Pretty good. And that's like an incredible amount to replace. 2 billion batteries? That's a lot of batteries. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that they'll be able to make that kind of an impact right out of the gate. Well, saying right out of the gate sounds funny because like the company has been around for so long, but like they're just coming out of the gate with products and working with brands and stuff like that. I also thought it was super interesting how he talked about fundraising, especially with this being like a deep tech company. What did you think about that? I was about to ask you the same question. Is $200 million a lot in 16 years? No. Like I, that's what, I feel like they're fintechs who are, were created like in the last year in the bad market who have raised more than that, especially for being deep tech because like investors, some categories, it's like, okay, well, these companies shouldn't have to raise this much money. Like SaaS companies are, should be built mainly lean by just by nature. But deep tech investors know you go in, it takes a ton of money, it takes a ton of money up front, and then it takes a long time. So to hear that they've raised 200 million, which is a lot, but it took them... 16 years to raise that and they've been able to kind of come to market with stuff with only raising that much amount of money as a deep tech company is really interesting. I know. I was just thinking like 200 million and then the first thing that comes to mind is Adam Newman getting 350 million or probably was an idea on a paper napkin probably. And I'm just like only 200 million for this? It's so, it's interesting because I'm also like, is that because investors weren't just investing at that time? Or is it because he didn't ask for a lot of money? Because you know how Europeans are kind of very, they're not as, I don't know, one of the main things like when we saw the bubble last year was that it was because Americans always went for really high valuations and really high, like a lot of money. And Europeans were a little more reserved in that sense. And so I was like, was he just really reserved in his ask for capital? Or was it just that investors weren't giving a lot? Yeah, definitely a question. Because He raised from, like he mentioned, a lot of like patient capital from where the company is based in Sweden. And like they just operate so differently over there with like private investment in general. So I am curious, like, yeah, if this company was started in the U.S. and like trying to do the exact same thing, 
if it had the same founders, like, would the fundraising look different or not? Like, I don't know. It's a good question. I think it probably, it totally would have. Americans are wild with the money they just throw at things. <laughs> but this thing, this, I, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on this idea. This is something to throw money at, I think. It's, it's just so interesting. No, I know. And like, once you start thinking about batteries and like what you would want to re- not have to worry about, like so many things like instantly came to mind. Like I just had to replace the battery in the smoke alarm in my house. And it's like, it went off while I was home, but like, what if it hadn't? And it started chirping that the battery was low, like, well, my dog was here by herself or something like that. Like, it would have just been, like, such a mess. Like, so thankfully I was here, but, like, imagine if, like, those kind of things just, like, were fully powered by the light in the room. I know. And there's just so many opportunities there, which is just, I'm horrendous at keeping batteries on hand and replacing stuff in a timely manner. I have a remote that I have not replaced the battery in. It's been dead for, I think, like, 18 months now, and I just, like, suffer without it for some reason when I could really just buy a battery. But, like, I am excited to see, like, what this could change I have for us lazy girls like me. I know. Oh, my goodness. I had a remote that was, like, broken, and I just didn't, like, I didn't, I did not replace it for, like, a year. I just evolved around it. Right, exactly. So I'm like, there's so many things with batteries where I feel like if I didn't have to replace it, I'd probably actually be able to use them. So with products like this that are powered by the light, what happens when there's no sun or like the lights are off? Is there still like some type of light we can't see that powers it or does it just completely not work? I feel like it probably wouldn't work, but it is also interesting. I guess we should have asked him more about this too, but the fact that you never hear of these like light powered products being able to work off of indoor light, like non-natural light. Oh, that's true. So it's like, I guess as long as you have the lights on at some point during the day, it would work. But like that definitely is an interesting piece of this that now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I would want to learn more about that. It's true. Is artificial light different from natural light? In terms of powering these? Yeah, but like, I definitely can't explain why. Neither can I. (laughs) Oh my gosh. See, that that brings us back to the first part where it's like, we have so many more questions. Like, we got smarter. Like, we are smarter. Yes. And I still have even more questions. I don't know. Like, I just never thought. I mean, like, I thought about it. But now I just, I want to know more about it. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.